Hello and welcome. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and so excited to be here. Our very first recording of new recording of 2023. And today our guest is Paul Folks Ariano. And he is the founder of a couple organizations, and one of them is Circuithon. Just a moment, Paul will be with us to tell us all about what he is up to. And uh, he's actually speaking with us from the UK, and we'll connect there too and just talk a little bit about the geography and what's going on in his part of the world. Welcome back. This is Hardstock. Hello again. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and Daniel Hogan is in the studio. Today, we're speaking with Paul Folks Ariano, and he is in the UK. He's the founder of Circuithon. Hi, Paul, and thanks so much for being on Heartstock. Yeah, hello to you too, and hi to all your listeners. Indeedy. And where in the UK are you? So I'm just outside London, um, pretty close to the airport in London, but in a very leafy part of London with lots of nature reserves and trees and stuff. So I'm um, close to the big city, but surrounded by deer and foxes and squirrels and trees. So it's uh, it's a good place to be. It sounds very lovely. Uh, before I hit record here, we were just talking about all of the uh, drama, kind of the, the bipolar weather we're having, and you're certainly experiencing some of that there, it sounds like, too. Yeah, I mean, climate is something British people are famous for talking about the weather, <laughs> but generally it was to say the weather hasn't really changed. It's dull. It's similar we have some sun, but now it is very dramatic. We go from drought to flooding. And um, I think people don't really realize that climate change is actually about flooding, not about hot weather. Um, and we are seeing a lot of flooding. Almost every week we're getting floods in different parts of the country. So the impact of all, all of our lives and all of our work here on planet Earth is um, really kind of in the forefront. And tell us a little bit about your organization and the impact that your aim and your goal is to create. Yeah, I have been, I guess, kind of interested in the environment since I was a kid. Um, I was very much interested in wildlife, particularly in birds and butterflies. And I never thought that in the kind of later years of my career, I would be working as an environmental consultant um, with my own firm, Circuithon. What I do basically is, is work with really big companies, but also with startups um, in North America, in Europe, in Asia to help them reduce carbon, first of all, but equally important to reduce pollution, to reduce toxic chemicals in their supply chain. And all of this based around um, what we now called 
um, now called the circular economy. And a lot of people still are kind of new to this concept of circular economy, but it, it's very, very kind of basic. It's like, don't waste stuff. Don't throw stuff away. Make sure that everything is kept in use and is being reused. Um, it's like a kind of industrial commercial patchwork quilt. You know, you never let anything go to waste. And that's what my business is. And there's a thriving market for that right now. And why is this so important? And how might it have an impact on climate or the level of toxins that we're introducing into the environment? How does all this kind of knit together, so to speak? Yeah. Well, first of all, to sort of reduce um, the toxics, to reduce the carbon, to to get to a place where you are really helping the planet rather than sort of setting it on fire, you have to measure what you do. So the key thing for big business and small business alike is to know what you're actually doing. What is your carbon footprint? What are the toxic chemicals that are in the products that you might use and process? Because a lot of people don't know. I mean, we've seen PFAs and, and what that's done. But there are a whole pile of things that we need to look at. So first of all, you need to know, and then you need to reduce. Um, and in many cases, that reduction can be quite dramatic because once you know, you can immediately take steps, even as a small business, to to get rid of those toxics and those really big emissions from your uh, from your business. So I was hoping we could talk a little bit about you and your background, what you did before this, and how it may have kind of set your feet on this path. Did you grow up there where you're living currently? I I grew up by a river. I grew up by uh, basically my house, which is in, again, a big city. Very So I lived in a big city in Manchester in the north of England. Um, my house had a back gate. And the back gate went onto the farmer's field, which was a field of wheat. And we were allowed to walk through. There was like a path for all the kids in the road to walk along through the field to reach the river, which was probably like, I don't know, 60 seconds away from the back gate. Mm. So I grew up basically spending all my summer kind of sitting on a riverbank, looking at ducks and butterflies and swans and you know, really immersed in this natural world. And when I went through the front door of the house, I was in a huge major industrial city, the home of the Industrial Revolution. So it's kind of weird. And that really, I think, as a child being surrounded by nature, but also my grandfather was a gardener and I spent every Saturday with him growing vegetables, growing flowers, my goodness, that taught me a lot about self-sufficiency and understanding to appreciate that what's on your table takes a lot of effort. And I think all of that, that real understanding of growing food, but also being surrounded by nature, left a massive imprint on me. But probably I did nothing about it in my 20s or 30s. And it probably wasn't until I was in my 40s that I started to really draw on that experience. 
And then did you go to college there? Did you go to university in the UK, in Manchester, London? Where did yeah. you Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's, I, I've done a few master's degrees <laughs> in different places. So I began in the UK. Um, I did my college here. I did my master's in linguistics and Hispanic linguistics, um, looking at endangered languages and sociolinguistics and ethnolinguistics um, in Cambridge University in the UK. And I did another master's in European studies that sort of took me a little bit further and got me more into kind of economics and, and law. And then finally, I actually, my wife is Mexican, and we moved to Mexico when we had small children, and I did my MBA in international marketing in Mexico. So it's been a very varied and bizarre kind of academic trajectory, but nothing to do with environment, nothing to do with biochemistry, which are the things I work in mainly today. So you said in Mexico, it was social economics, is that right? It was um, an MBA in international marketing. International marketing. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So the, I'm very fascinated by this because this is quite common with many of the folks that we have on Heartstock, just to have a very diverse and what would seem like unrelated kind of experiences in life. Why do you think that is? Did you just always have a broad interest in many things? Yeah, I think it's a thirst for knowledge. And absolutely, it seems incredibly disconnected, linguistics, um, economics and law and, you know, international marketing. And I think what I felt as I was by this stage, when I did my second two masteries, I was working. I think it was a kind of, I'm in the world of work, but no one's taught me about this. Like you get thrown into work and you're expected to know business and how to work and how to be a colleague and an employee. And I thought it wouldn't be great to sort of have some proper training on this. And at the time, you know, training was not a big thing in business. You know, I think today training is massive. Back in the 80s, you didn't really get trained in business terribly much. So I went off and did these master's degrees and was with other people in different industries. And that teaches you a huge amount about the world, about different cultures. But but more than anything, it gives you a bit of background for your decision making. And, you know, to be honest, I've never stopped learning. And I pretty much since then, I've taught at universities, given lectures, done seminars. Um, and I love knowledge and I love reading academic books. And And finally... Many, many years later, I'm now writing academic books as well. So it's uh, been a bit of a full circle. But drawing on all of that knowledge, I mean, for me, the written word is, you know, is absolutely brilliant. And I don't just rely on the internet for what I learn. <laughs> Thank goodness for that. Um, that that's a whole other yeah. program and show that we, sh- we should have. <laughs> um, so... Now I'm wondering, did you have an aha moment or a point at which in life you realized this is what you this was going to be your life's work and your calling with Circulathon and how did that yeah. evolve? And I, I know I just pr- mispronounced yeah. Circulathon. Sorry, I'm 
Like, yeah, it's, it's good. I like the other version as well. <laughs> um, there is an aha moment, absolutely. But there was something that led up to that. Most of my professional career, I worked in packaging design and industrial design. It, again, it was something that just interested me. And I went to work in that as the kind of outsider. I didn't have a degree in design, but I just was really interested in creativity, but sort of not just the graphics on the packaging, but also the, the shapes and the forms and the functionality of packaging. I absolutely love that. And I ended up working in various international agencies, um, running my own packaging design agency. And over time, you know, really beginning to understand the implications of certain materials and the sustainability. We didn't have that word back when I was looking at packaging. We talked about sort of environmental packaging or green packaging. And then suddenly the sustainability word appeared in the sort of 2000s. And one of the colleagues that was working with me, one of the agencies I was at, he had a PhD, a doctorate in sustainable design, which was kind of unheard of. We're going back, you know, 15 years. Mm. And I was kind of working a lot with him on different projects and saying stuff and he was going well that's not quite right well and he really trained me up and, and opened my mind to um proper what i call mathematical sustainability doing the maths there's no you can't have a kind of um gut feel oh that's bad that's good you have to look at the figures you have to look at the implications you need to look at the whole ecosystem to work out what is good and what is bad and that was probably my first aha moment. That would have been in the beginning of 2012. So we're going back about 11 years when I first learned properly about sustainable design. And this professor, where was he? And it sounds like they may have been a mentor and had a great impact on what came next for you. Yeah. I mean, he was a colleague, so he came oh. to join the business. Okay. You know, I used to go to his workshops and sometimes help him out with the workshops, like in terms of prepping them or helping him run some of the kind of breakout groups in those workshops. And I learned a lot from working with him, but also, you know, traveling by train or by car or by plane to go to these things. We would talk and we would talk about butterflies and seals and penguins and, and what we were doing, what how it might impact all these wild creatures that were really, I, I loved them so much. I was like, what does this mean? Will this mean, will this help the penguins? Is it, is it a positive? And that's actually, I think my love of nature was what really got me thinking because sometimes you would say, yeah, that could be done, Paul, but that may impact your butterflies. Mm -hmm. And that really made me think. I was like, oh, my goodness. Every decision that we make as a consultant, as a brand, as a business, could actually have a huge impact on bits of nature that aren't even in your country. Mm -hmm. We can do something in London that affects penguins. Somebody in Singapore can do something that affects monarch butterflies. I guess it's, you know, it, it doesn't seem logical, but that's how the world works. Yes. We are all connected. And I know this is part of circularity, right? Yeah, 
Absolutely. I mean, the one thing you learn very quickly is that we are all part of nature. We're not, we don't look at nature. We are nature as well. And we're all connected. And nature is one big circle. It's a big loop. Yeah. Um, and if we humans want to kind of survive as a race or as a species, we have to remain in that loop and make sure the loop doesn't get destroyed. Indeedy. We're going to take our midway point break here and we shall be right back. This is Heartstock. Thanks for listening. This is Heartstock Radio. I'm your host, Carol Murphy, and thanks again for listening. Uh, today, we're speaking with Paul Folks Aureliano, and he is the founder of Circuithon. And Paul, I know that you have other uh, associated organizations. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the full compass of your work and the organizations that you've established to do that work? Absolutely. I think one of the things I realized is that um, to try to do everything from a commercial consulting firm was impossible. And that you, you or I or anybody needs a kind of um, a platform where you are free to speak, where you're free to do what you want without upsetting clients. So I had a kind of light bulb moment in Boston in uh, 2018 when I was talking at an event called How Design Live, um, surrounded by packaging designers and creatives. And a couple of people said to me, how do we as creatives um, help change the world? How do we do something to improve things like emissions, plastic pollution, the loss of biodiversity. And I said, well, we would need to form some kind of rebel alliance, as in Star Wars, you know, we would need to form an alliance <laughs> where we would together as creatives take on big polluting business. And that gave birth to the Sustainable Design Alliance. Um, and the Sustainable Design Alliance continues to this day. It's a kind of pro bono initiative. And it's all kinds of design. I mean, we were packaging designers, but um, the people involved are digital design, fashion design, architects, interior designers, all kinds of creative people have been involved in the educational mission of Sustainable Design Alliance. And, you know, we've been out to business schools as creatives to talk to um, MBA students um, we've got a Twitter feed, we've got a feed on LinkedIn, but we don't really exist. We are very much the Rebel Alliance. You could, We don't have an office, we don't have an address, we have an email address and that's it. But we work together informally to kind of change the narrative. But again, because everybody involved is, uh, I would say I'm probably the only non-trained creative, um, things are done in a very creative way. And Sustainable Design Alliance has very much influenced 
the work that I do at Circuithon as well. And can you talk a little bit about that as well? It sounds like the Alliance came first. Is that right? Yeah. So the Alliance came first in 2018. Circuithon began as a you know, professional consulting firm focused on the environment in 2020. But within a very short space of time, I decided that I wanted to campaign within this consulting firm so that the consulting firm would fund education to business around the topics that I really thought they weren't aware of. And I wasn't really quite sure, again, how to do it. I thought we need some kind of initiative. We need some kind of network. We need to kind of, it can't be just me. It needs to be groups of people from industry who were going out and telling these messages to hundreds, to thousands, to millions of people. So I had done a stint when I lived in Mexico working with the footwear industry. And I could see that the footwear industry was just the most polluting industry out there because they didn't even try to contain their pollution. I mean, footwear is 95% toxic plastic, which is never recycled. It just goes into landfill. There are 20, yeah, I, I just had to question myself, 20 billion pairs of footwear going into landfill every year and that's increasing so i set up the circular footwear initiative to try and educate the world about footwear because people really i mean they still don't know people within the footwear industry now know because we've been going for two and a half years um and you know i've done a lot of work around footwear education but um the general public aren't aware just how bad and how toxic shoes are uh, but that will change you know the the circular foot initiative has had a big impact and that will change and on the back of that i thought okay what else do i need to do and i had a lot of people saying why aren't you tackling fashion fashion's far worse than footwear and i said well you know okay let's do a circular fashion initiative so a couple of years ago i wrote a uh, a mission statement for the fashion industry, and it became my kind of agenda to change the fashion industry through the Circular Fashion Initiative. And that has had a massive impact. And I'm just still astonished by the amount of traction that initiative has had in such a short amount of time. It's, it's almost as if it has a life of its own. And speaking of writing, I think you have a, a book coming up. Tell, can you tell us a little bit about what that's about? Sure. Um, so I'm writing a book for a publishing company called Taylor and Francis. Um, my co-author is a material scientist called Dr. Julia Goldstein. She's based in Seattle. Um, she's written about um, sustainable materials extensively already. She is a phenomenal writer, and I loved um, her book. She has a book called Material Value, which is all about sustainable materials, which I think was 
I wrote her a fan letter. It's the truth. I said, Julia, my goodness, if only this book had existed when I began my career, I, I, I it would have saved me um, so much time to understand this, but it would also have changed many of the decisions that I may have made on behalf of clients. And we we kept in contact. And then um, together, we, we decided to write not really a, a sequel to this book, but a book based on this, which is around sustainable materials for manufacture. This book is for um, business people, but it's also for university students, whether they've got an engineering background or, you know, have never come across materials in their lives. It's a guide that shows you what are all the different things that we make everything that surrounds us with, how sustainable they are, but also the end of life, what happens to them? Because I think one of the key issues in all manufacture, but also in the way that we live is, what happens when I put that item out of my house into the system that exists outside? And, you know, a lot of people, there are billions of people on the planet and billions of people have no access to waste management. So again, um, part of this book is education, but a lot of it is also, I think for the first time, tackling some of the the really big industrial topics around how does industry deal with its waste, which is a huge, huge topic. Yes, it's not just the end of the con- the consumables life. It's also what happens to the environment as a result of the production of that item. Correct, yeah. Consumers have power. We've got about mm, a couple minutes left. Um, and this is uh, one of my favorite questions. As consumers, can we? is this going to be driven by consumers or industry? Industry will always have to provide an alternative because we're not going to stop eating. Right. We're not going to stop traveling. We're not going to stop entertaining ourselves. So, you know, the way that sustainability works is that first industry has to look deep into what it's doing and work out what a better alternative is, then put it on sale, and then really educate people to say, this is what you really want. This is what is better. Better as an experience often, um, but better for the planet. And then people will just immediately buy it. And we've seen um, over the past 20, 30 years, consumers rushing into new technology, which is actually greener because it has so many more benefits. And usually if it's it's a better product, they'll buy it straight away. So it definitely is led by industry. Legislators help to speed things up. So what we're seeing now across the world is lots of new green legislation in the US, in the EU, in Australia. Right, I mean, every single country is bringing in green legislation. And that helps people because they're like, well, actually, that's more expensive now. I'll buy the greener option because I'm not going to pay extra money for this one. And eventually what happens, the green option becomes the cheap standard option. And that's the goal of what I do. We need to make the most eco option, the cheapest, the best, and the one that everyone chooses and the one that actually gives back to the planet. And we can do that. We can we can start to see 
so many products now that actually achieve that and and that what's kind of makes my heart kind of sing really when i see these massive changes in how people are doing things and how might folks find you paul if uh, they want to carry on the conversation my main website is called circuithon.com that's c i r c u t h o n um, but also google circular fashion initiative circular footwear initiative and last year we began on the drinks industry beverages circular drinks initiative so we've got all these initiatives happening and you know certainly the circular fashion initiative is by far the biggest one people are joining the whole time but there's plenty of information there and and and, and places that you will it will lead you to other places as well um, with lots of other good resources fantastic and thank you so much for speaking with us and uh, sharing your story with our listeners on Heartstock. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Carol. Mm-hmm. And we shall see you next week. This is Heartstock. Peace. Heartstock Radio is a production of KBMF 102.5 Butte America Radio. Hear our programs every Friday at 5 p.m. Mountain Standard Time via live stream at butteamericaradio.org.